You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Yet another patient with functional bowel disease. Isn't there anything new that we can use to help diagnose these patients and treat them more effectively? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. William Shea, Professor of Medicine, Director of GI Physiology in the Division of Gastroenterology at the University of Michigan Health System, and a member of the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Shea. Thank you very much, Lee. My pleasure. Irritable bowel or functional bowel disease is something that is so common in a primary care practice. Are there some new insights into the pathophysiology and cause for this disorder? Absolutely. The functional bowel disorders are really undergoing tremendous study at the current time, and we've really been mystified, I think. Clinicians and patients alike have been mystified about the potential causes of symptoms in patients that we characterize as suffering with IBS or, for that matter, other functional disorders like functional dyspepsia, for example. Um, We've typically blamed symptoms on abnormalities in motility or contractile activity within the gastrointestinal tract, but really as time's gone on, it's become abundantly clear that not all patients with functional symptoms actually have identifiable motility patterns or motility abnormalities. In addition, there is no pathognomonic motility abnormality for patients with IBS, for example. People have also talked about abnormalities in sensation within the GI tract and abnormalities in interactions between the brain and the gut, but there are actually a whole bunch of new ideas about what might be at the root of IBS, at least for subsets of patients. And I've certainly heard of the studies where a balloon is placed into the rectum and inflated, and people with irritable bowel have a much different neurologic response than someone without. But is that the type of neurologic issue that you're referring to? Yes. Those types of studies where people inflate a balloon within the gastrointestinal tract, and patients with IBS tend to be more sensitive than individuals without IBS, uh, have really been held up to suggest that patients with IBS have differences in sensation within the GI tract compared to those without IBS. But there's other very interesting stuff that's been shown recently. Let me give you one example. There is a very interesting recent study from Sweden where investigators actually infused lipid solution into the upper portion of the gastrointestinal tract and measured sensation in response to distension of a balloon in the rectum before and after that lipid infusion. And what they found was that simply by infusing lipid into the upper portion of the small intestine, they could actually make patients more sensitive to balloon distension in the rectum, suggesting that not only is the hardwiring different, but the response to different things, and specifically in this case, food, may be different in patients with IBS versus patients or individuals without IBS. And this is obviously very relevant given the fact that Two-thirds of patients with IBS relate their symptoms to eating a meal. And this is is not a response that we would see in control subjects. No. In fact, studied controls in this particular study and did not find that response in controls. And is this felt to be a neurologic type of communication between the upper tract and the lower tract or more hormonal? Or is, is it not really understood at this point? At this point, I think you can still view this information as hypothesis generating, but It is likely related to neuroendocrine abnormalities, which are specific to patients with functional disorders like IBS. Our genetic role, is there any progress in looking at that angle? Another very, very interesting area. There are now numerous studies conducted in twins which show that monozygotic twins are more likely to be concordant for IBS than dizygotic twins, suggesting that there probably is a genetic component 
two IBS. Now, it's important, though, to understand that there's also a very important sociologic component because IBS, even outside of twin studies, seems to run in families. So socialization probably plays as important or perhaps a more important role in developing IBS as does genetic factors. That's very interesting. So you, you certainly do have to look at the patient and, and the stresses that the patient is encountering in their particular society, and that may overpower genetics. Yeah, in fact, I kind of think about those things, too, as not being mutually exclusive. In other words, what I mean by that is it may be that just as in the, the current cancer paradigms, you need a genetically susceptible milieu and then a subsequent series of hits that leads to the phenotype of the disease. The same may be true for IBS. In other words, it may well be that there will be a genetic susceptibility that is only unmasked by a series of either environmental or behavioral sociological hits that leads to the phenotype of IBS. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm discussing new developments in irritable bowel disease with Dr. William Shea from the University of Michigan Health Systems. Dr. Shea, have these insights led to any new thoughts in terms of treatments at this point? Well, I think one thing that's, that's become clear is that behavioral therapies can be helpful for some patients that have overarching psychosocial distress there's been a lot more focus, I think, on the use of pain modulators as well as behavioral therapies to improve responses in patients with IBS to their symptoms and also perhaps to modulate perception of painful signals arising from the GI tract. So the medical examples would be the use of drugs like tricyclic antidepressants or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are thought to perhaps modify the central processing of painful signals uh, rising from the GI tract. Is there some conscious control where techniques like biofeedback might be useful? Absolutely. And I, you know, I think that that is a road that's worth considering for patients that prove medically refractory or in cases where there is clear um, psychosocial distress or a history of abuse. And so absolutely, things like interpersonal psychodynamic psychotherapy, Things like hypnosis, things like biofeedback, things like relaxation training have been used successfully to treat at least a subset of patients with IBS. I think about antibiotics recently and probiotics as other things that seem to be popular. Is there some support for the use of those? Yeah, you know, I think this whole idea is founded on the fact that there's ever-growing evidence that inflammation may play a role in a subset of patients with IBS. So some examples there would be the clinical observation that a subset of individuals after a viral or bacterial gastroenteritis will go on to develop long-lasting GI symptoms that would otherwise be characterized as IBS. In fact, it's been reported that anywhere between 7 up to 25% of patients following a viral or bacterial gastroenteritis will go on to develop long-lasting symptoms of IBS. So this idea about dysregulation of the immune system, which doesn't return to normal as it does in most people that have a GI infection. Similarly, there's been other studies recently, biopsy specimens from, from patients with IBS, as well as measurements of different inflammatory factors, which suggest that the immune system may be dysregulated in IBS patients compared to, to, to healthy volunteers. So this idea about modifying the immune response, you know, I think is a very interesting one. There's also recent data to suggest that the flora within the GI tract may be different in IBS patients versus control. Some people have actually argued, like the Cedars-Sinai group has argued, that 
there may be a greater likelihood of an abnormal growth of bacteria in the small bowel, that so-called small bowel bacterial overgrowth, while others have, have simply argued and made the observation that the flora within the GI tract in general, not necessarily small bowel bacterial overgrowth, but just differences in the intrinsic flora of the GI tract may be different between IBS patients and controls. And, and it sort of begs this question, can you modify it through the use of antibiotics or probiotics? And has that made its way into your practice? Do you go to those agents at times? You know, it actually has. And I wouldn't say that it's first line necessarily for me, but for patients that are seeking an alternative to standard drug therapy for IBS or in my particular practice, which oftentimes consists of patients who have already tried the standard dietary lifestyle things, the standard drugs for IBS, and are, and are coming to me looking for something else to try or do a lot of times I'm left with thinking about some of these therapies that are still early on in terms of their development, in terms of the evidence to show efficacy, but, but nonetheless, I think are options for some patients. In terms of some of the behavioral things that you were, you were mentioning, is this something that would be widely available at any university setting or are there centers of excellence that we should be looking to refer our difficult patients to? Yeah, I wish I could tell you that these kinds of services were widely available and easy to get. And I think that, you know, those are two separate issues which both, unfortunately, confound a doc's ability to be able to obtain these services for their patients. I think, the, you know, the first issue is a very practical one, and that is that there's not a week that goes by in my practice that I don't get a letter back from an insurance company saying that they won't cover behavioral therapies or psychological therapies for IBS. There's a practical issue with regard to coverage, and then there's the second issue is, is access, and that is actually having a trained therapist that has an interest in functional bowel disorders that's trained in caring for patients with functional bowel disorders and is willing to take those kinds of patients on. We're very fortunate here at University of Michigan to have those kinds of services, but I acknowledge that those services may not necessarily be widely available uh, in the community. I think the, the best bit of advice to offer is to understand where those services are available close to wherever you practice. And if you're interested in doing so, talking to therapists and seeing if you can develop some lines of communication with one or more local therapists that you can get interested in helping you to care for these patients. Very good advice. So it seems that we really do need to focus on the entire patient in treating this very difficult syndrome and, and look at the psychosocial stressors and also try to modify lifestyle behaviors as well as modulating some of the central perception perhaps that you mentioned with the tricyclics and maybe some of the serotonergic active agents. And then there are the promotility and the anticholinergic types of medicines. In, in that last group, do you have favorites that you like to use? the anticholinergics or promotility agents for these patients? Yeah, here's the problem with the currently available antispasmodics or anticholinergics in the United States. You know, there have been a number of analyses that have looked at the literature that addresses the effectiveness of these particular therapies in patients with IBS. And there is some evidence to suggest that anticholinergics, antispasmodics may offer some benefit to abdominal pain in patients with IBS. The downside that you have to remember about is that anticholinergics in particular um, have a variety of dose-dependent side effects that can be particularly troubling in the elderly. The other key thing to remember is that anticholinergics can worsen problems with constipation. So for, patient, you know, for patients that have constipation-associated symptoms, you have to be really careful with those agents. But 
the analyses that have looked at the literature and aggregate on this, these particular therapies have found that the agents that are most effective for the treatment of IBS are unfortunately ones that are not available in the United States. The agents that we have currently available in the United States, things like dicyclamine and hyoscyamine, have not been found in the available literature to be terribly effective. I must say that the studies that are available are relatively poor quality, so it's hard to actually make a judgment as to whether they're effective or not effective. But that's kind of where we are right now in terms of the use of these particular agents. I think those of us that use them tend to use those, particular, those two particular agents because that's what's available. Well, I want to thank Dr. William Shea, who has been our guest, as we've been discussing newer developments in the evaluation and treatment of irritable bowel syndrome. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.